The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 34, a psalm of David when he pretended madness before Abimelech, who drove him away and he departed. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried out and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He guards all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. Amen. Okay, we are in Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20. This is entitled, A King Over Israel. When you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, and possess it and dwell in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you shall surely set a king over you, whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren, you shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother, but he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. Also, it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priests, the Levites, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and to be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes. 
that his heart may not be lifted up above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, and that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. There is an irony in the verses today, which is played out many hundreds of years later in Israel. Moses anticipated even before the people entered Canaan that they would want a king over them, just like all of the nations who were around them. As we will see, this is exactly what occurred. Israel had a system that worked. It was developed by the Lord, and there was no need to change things. But we will look for a change even when things are going along just fine, and even when we are aware of how the changes will negatively affect us. The idea is, this time, it'll be different. It is a hopeless condition in us that says, we can do it better. Just get out of the way, and we will handle it. If that sounds familiar in today's world, it's because the exact same type of scenario is unfolding in these United States, right before our eyes. John Adams, our second president, and one of the founding fathers said, our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Contrast that to what we read from Jerry Nadler in last week's sermon. He said, what any religious tradition describes as God's will is no concern of this Congress. While much of the world has pursued a secular agenda where God has no part in their governments, the U.S. has resisted this. Instead, we have held to a moral and religious foundation to direct our affairs. But the cry has been raised more and more with each succeeding year and until today in the United States, which has been unlike most other nations, it wants to be just like all of the nations. What worked for Israel wasn't enough, and what has worked for the U.S. isn't enough. God, get out of our way. We want to be like everybody else. Our text verse comes from Isaiah 33. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Isaiah was a prophet during the time of the kings, and yet, while serving under various kings, he wrote these words acknowledging that while Israel has kings, Israel has a king. Today, thousands of years later, they still have not seen this. They have a government that is formed which is at odds with this notion. They are a secular people, and their idea of having a biblical morality is, like the United States today, only an idea displayed through lip service. The laws they enact are detestable. The conduct that they allow is perverse. And the only time the name of the Lord is invoked is when they need to feel self-righteous or when there is a calamity looming. Other than that, he is far from their minds, just like it is with the Jerry Nadlers of this nation. Now, before I go on, I want you to understand, if you don't understand that, go check the policies of Israel and the laws that they enact, and you'll see. They're the exact same type of laws that we're enacting in this nation, and I can say that without any shame or fear of being wrong. Unfortunately, they, meaning these type of people, are in power, and therefore they determine the nation's direction. It will not go well with Israel, and it cannot go well with us. And it all could be avoided if people just accepted the will of the Lord. But that cannot happen unless the will of the Lord is known. And that cannot come about unless the word of the Lord is available, read, meditated upon, and then applied to the conduct of the individual or group in question. This is a certain truth that is revealed today 
in this passage from his superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got a few thoughts for you today. The first is, the wisest man who ever lived. It's verses 14 through 17. Verse 14, when you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Similar words have already been seen several times, and they will continue to be repeated. They clearly indicate either mosaic authorship or a total fabrication. One cannot claim partial authenticity when an entire passage is anchored on a verse such as this. And as each passage is logically placed within the main content of the book, a meticulously designed structure evolves that reveals a single unified whole that bears the stamp of one source as it is then conveyed through the chosen instrument of writing the words out, meaning Moses. Moses is speaking of an event coming in the land that is literally days away. And yet the words are referring to a possibility that may be years away or that ostensibly may never come to pass. However, the fact that they are being conveyed to Israel now indicates that the Lord knows they will occur. He is their ruler and he is giving them the land. Thus, this situation speaks of a theocracy. In this situation, entering the land with the Lord as their ultimate leader, verse 14 continues, and possess it and dwell in it and say... The use of the prepositions one after another provides its own emphasis. Ve-rishta, ve-yasavta, ba, ve-amarta. And have possessed it, and have dwelt in it, and you have said. It is to be a reflection before the proposed action is taken. Who promised you the land? Who delivered you into the land? Who gave it to you to possess? Who made that possession possible? You now dwell there. How did that come about? A similar thought process is conveyed between conservative and liberal ideologies at any given moment in our world today. Where did what you have come from? To whom do you want to be accountable? Be careful what you ask for. Unfortunately, it seems people always inevitably incline toward the wrong thing. Moses knows this because the Lord is working through him as he writes out the law. The people will reject the good. In this, they will say, verse 14 continues, I will set a king over me. The words have consistently been in the singular. It is Israel, the nation, who is being addressed. And it is Israel, the nation, who will, as a whole, take this path. Who has led me all along? Look at all the good that I have around me. The abundant blessings and productive land. All is marvelous. It's time for a change for something better. For an extended period of time, the land was led by judges. The Lord raised them up, they served, and then they were replaced as the Lord saw fit. Israel was guided by them, but the Lord was their head. However, it wasn't enough. Israel, instead of looking upwards to the Lord, focused their eyes outward to the nations. They saw how things worked and they felt out of place. The sufficiency of the Lord was, to them, insufficient. Moses knew that Israel would want to be, verse 14 continues, like all the nations that are around me. The thinking is perverse in the extreme. Israel had circumcision on the eighth day. Israel had the Passover. Israel had the Sabbath. Israel had the tabernacle. It had the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Sukkot. Their garments had tassels and their diet was set apart from all others. 
All of this was based on their relationship with the Lord, and yet they wanted to, well, otherwise be just like the other nations around them in calling for a king. Moses knew it was coming, and it came from 1 Samuel 8. Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abiyah. They were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. Then all the leaders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. With this petition, the people who were like none of the other nations decided that in this particular case, they would be like all of the nations. Everything else the Lord had done worked fine for them, but they needed to tweak things to make them better. It's just a little tweak after all, at least from their perspective. However, 1 Samuel 8 goes on. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel, heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. When, not if, this were to come about, Moses says, verse 15, you shall surely set a king over you. The words are emphatic. Som tasum alecha melek. Setting, you shall set over you a king. What will be said about such a king now becomes a point of law. In the exchange between the Lord and Samuel, the Lord said, now therefore heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. This is what Samuel did, carefully explaining and warning what the consequences of their request would be. That is found in 1 Samuel 8, 10 through 18. Despite the warnings, the people who are completely unlike any other people decided they wanted to be just like all of the other people, well, at least in this one way. From 1 Samuel 8 again, nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but we will have a king over us, that we also may be like all of the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. So the Lord said to Samuel, heed their voice and make them a king. The people would ask, and the people did ask. However, there were to be conditions laid out by Moses that now must be heeded. Verse 15 continues, whom the Lord your God chooses. With the people adamant that they wanted a king, 1 Samuel 8 closes out with, and Samuel said to the men of Israel, every man go to his city. The next chapter then immediately details the account of the selection of Saul as the first king of Israel. His name means asked for. It is an appropriate name for what occurred. The people asked for a king, having rejected the Lord in this capacity. When a king is chosen by the Lord, he will be, verse 15 going on, one from among your brethren you shall set as king over you. In the previous chapter, the appointment of judges and officers was commanded. Further, the line of the high priest had already been established and codified into law. However, the appointment of a king has not been commanded because the Lord is ostensibly their king. But the precept is not forbidden. Rather, it is an allowance. And yet, in the approval of such an allowance, more commands than logically follow. This one says that only an Israelite was to be set as king over the nation. 
the obvious implication is that if the Lord is to be their king, then any king set above the people is to emulate the true coming king, the Messiah. Such will be seen as the prophetic writings later come. This may not have even been on the minds of the people, but it is with all certainty on the mind of the Lord. When Christ came, it is this verse that the people challenged him with concerning a matter of law, Matthew 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him, meaning Jesus, in his talk. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth, nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Their question was duplicitous. If the Lord had answered yes, he would have become a lawbreaker of the Mosaic law and worthy to be condemned by Israel. If he had said no, he would have become a lawbreaker to Rome and would be condemned by the Romans. Of course, after being ratted out by the Pharisees. However, they never considered the third option an option that implied that even though they could not violate the Mosaic Code in the selection of their rulers, they were, by default, set under the authority of Rome by the Lord, and thus they were responsible to Rome while still being responsible to Moses. Jesus knew this because it is he who gave them the law of Moses, and it is he who set them under Rome. He anticipated their question, and he shamed them with his response. Render, therefore, to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. As an Israelite, he could not show partiality to the law, nor could he show partiality to Caesar, because it is the Lord who placed Israel under both. As the Lord, he expected compliance for both. For Israel, however, verse 15 continues, you may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. The word is nokri. It signifies a stranger or something out of place. At times, the term is used for an adulteress. It is something that does not belong because the nature of the thing is foreign. This is then restated in apposition by saying, who is not your brother. In other words, only a brother Israelite could be king. And when he was installed as the king, a king he would be. Before going on, a point must be made. The leaders of Israel tried to trap Jesus into violating this law in order to obtain justification to have him destroyed. And yet, while they were having him destroyed unjustly, they violated this very law that we are looking at right now with their own words. But they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. They had rejected the law of Moses. They had rejected the words of Isaiah that the Lord is their king, and therefore the penalty of the law stood heavily upon them. For those who later failed to acknowledge Christ, their destiny will be a mournful one. For now, and with Moses' words concerning a brother Israelite ruling over Israel, that still would not mean that he was an absolute sovereign, as is seen in the next words. Verse 16, but he shall not multiply horses for himself. In a kingdom, and depending on the structure of that kingdom, a king could ostensibly wield unlimited power. His right to rule was absolute. However, limitations were set upon any future king of Israel. 
This is seen immediately after the authorization for the appointment of a king in the words rock, lo yarbe, lo susim. Only no shall he multiply to himself horses. There are numerous reasons for this prohibition, but the main one is that of personal pride or exaltation. A king with many horses would elevate himself above those under his rule. And more, he would immediately begin to trust in a cavalry above the hosts of Israel that were given by the Lord for them to trust in him. The thought is expressed in the Psalms from Psalm 40. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. And again, from Psalm 33, no king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is vain hope for safety. Neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. Despite this, Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, failed to apply the wisdom he was given, notably disobeying this precept. And Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king at Jerusalem. The very first precept given, the very first precept for the king, he violated. Along with this, Moses next says, verse 16 continues, nor caused the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Lema'an harbot sus, to end purpose, multiply horse. In other words, the people might say, we're not returning to Egypt to live, nor are we returning there for some other ignoble cause. Rather, we are going there with the set purpose of building up Israel. Thus, it is okay for us to do this. Moses says otherwise. Israel had left Egypt. They were not to return there. This was not a temporary prohibition. One might think Moses meant this as a short-term expedient until we're established in the land. After that, returning to Egypt would not involve a national departure as it might have back then. This thinking would be incorrect. First, it is spoken into the same law that all of the other commands are placed, and it is done so without any qualifiers at all. It is a matter of law, and to disobey it is to disobey the law. Secondly, the issue had nothing to do with the possible desire for a national return to Egypt, thus abandoning the land of Canaan. This is evidenced perfectly and clearly by the prophet Isaiah, who came many, many, many years later. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel, nor seek the Lord. Many hundreds of years after Israel was in the land, at a time when they were deeply rooted there with no chance of the people packing up and moving back to Egypt, Isaiah repeated the sentiment found in this verse right now. For all intents and purposes, Egypt represents defeat. For Israel to go back and seek assistance for their kingdom from a kingdom the Lord had defeated was to implicitly reject the Lord who had given them the victory in the first place. In type, Egypt pictures bondage to sin. Who delivered us from that? The Lord. To go back to where we were in our sin in order to find a remedy to our plight is to reject the one who delivered us from that sin in the first place. I have this addiction, and to get myself better, I will return to where the addiction came from. The path back to Egypt was to be cut. There was and there is to be only a reliance on the Lord. 
Throughout the prophets, horses are mentioned in relation to war or foreign assistance. In this, the people were trusting in something other than the Lord for their continuance. What is it we need? Another drink? Another shot of dope? Another click on a porn site? Rather, it is to the Lord to whom we are to look, and in Him we are to place our trust. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to Him, take away all iniquity. Receive us graciously, for we will offer the sacrifice of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say any more to the work of our hands. You are our gods, for in you the fatherless finds mercy. Hosea chapter 14. Despite this, Solomon, who according to 1 Kings 3 verse 12 is the wisest man who ever lived, failed to apply the wisdom he was given, notably disobeying this precept. Also, Solomon had horses imported from Egypt and Kevay. The king's merchants bought them in Kevay at the current price. Now, a chariot that was imported from Egypt cost 600 shekels of silver and a horse 150. And thus, through their agents, they exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. Second law, second law broken. Good job, Solomon. Verse 16 continues, For the Lord has said to you, You shall not turn that way again. This was not a minor temporary prohibition, nor was it a suggestion. It is a word of law. The way back to Egypt was not to be traveled again. The king was so warned and more. Verse 17, neither shall he multiply wives for himself. Uh Uh-oh, this was and remains today in some places the practice of many kings. The multiplication of wives has a variety of purposes, including increasing one's offspring and maybe getting a lot of headaches too. Some purposes may be valid while others may not. However, this cannot be taken as a verse forbidding polygamy. If that were so, we would have a contradiction in Scripture. When the Lord spoke through Nathan the prophet to David, he said, I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. If that had been too little, I would have given you much more. Not only did David have his own wives, but the Lord gave him more and avows that he would have given him even more. At what point having multiple wives becomes multiplying wives is not stated, but us to judge as to one, 10, or 20 follows under what is known as the fallacy of the beard. If you don't know what that means, we've got a gentleman sitting in the second row here. He's got a little bit of a whisker. Is that a beard? If it gets another day, is it a beard? The next day, is it a beard? Having a lot of wives in Israel would fall under the fallacy of the beard. When does it become a beard. If the Lord provides, it cannot be considered wrong. However, any good purpose and point of having a variety of wives was exceeded by David's son, Solomon. Guess what? The wisest guy that ever lived. Despite being the wisest man who ever lived, he failed to live out the wisdom he was given, notably disobeying this precept. But King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love, and he had 700 wives. I would say that's a full beard, folks. (laughs) Princesses and 300 concubines. 
There was a specific reason Moses now provides this law. Verse 17 continues, lest his heart turn away. The issue is not because more than one wife was wrong. It is because a multitude of wives would lead the king down the wrong path away from the Lord, exactly as happened to Solomon. And his wives turned away his heart, for it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord as did his father David. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And he did likewise for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Verse 17 continues, Nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. And silver and gold, no, shall he multiply to himself greatly. Based on the words here, David could be accused of violating this precept. He had in his possession 100,000 talents of gold, 1 million talents of silver, and bronze beyond measure. But his wealth must be considered an exception to this precept for one particular reason. He had acquired it with the set purpose of building the house of the Lord. Go to 1 Chronicles 22:14 and read up. On the other hand, along came his son Solomon. Despite being the wisest man who ever lived, he failed to apply the wisdom he was given, notably disobeying this precept. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. Not one was silver, for this was accounted as nothing in the days of Solomon. It is as if Moses had Solomon in mind when he looked into the future, and it is as if the chronicler of the life of Solomon had Moses' words in mind as he wrote out his words. The case is that the Lord purposefully included these words in both to show us the tragedy of relying solely on one's personal wisdom without relying on the Lord for its application. The often repeated thought in Scripture says, and guess who wrote this? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. In other words, true wisdom only begins with the fear of the Lord. Now listen to this. If it begins with it, then it must continue with it, and it must end with it. If one were to say the best gas is the beginning of the race, it is a statement that only the best gas is what can win the race. Hence, it logically follows that the continuance of the race and the finishing of the race are dependent on that same gas. All of the wisdom in the world is pointless if the Lord is not the center of focus in the application of the wisdom. The record of the wisdom, the wealth, and the power of Solomon is permanently tarnished because he failed to remember the precept of his own proverb. In his rush to find enlightenment apart from the Lord, he ultimately found that only in the Lord is found true enlightenment. From the book of Ecclesiastes, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all 
for God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. In order to ensure that the king of Israel, whoever he may be, would comply with these precepts, Moses next gives another command to the would-be king. A book to study seeking out its veins of gold. A king's adventure as he seeks the Lord's face. The Torah of God daily to unfold. Lessons for the throne in every generation in the king's place. What will speak out to him on today's trek? This law seems so vast and complicated some of the time. Will the day's meditation be a burden on his neck? Or will what he reads seem glorious and sublime? Open my eyes, O Lord, to what lies ahead. Direct my understanding and also guide my heart. This is what the king petitions, looking to be fed. This is what he asks for each day upon his start. Show the king the riches of Christ in his reading of the book. Be with him as he opens it. And for life's direction, he does look. Our second thought today, a copy of this law. It's verses 18 through 20. Verse 18. And it also shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom. And according to the sitting upon the throne, his kingdom. In other words, when he begins to reign, this would ostensibly be the first true duty of his kingship. That duty is, verse 18 continues, that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book. Vekatav lo et mishne ha Torah hazot al sefer, and write to himself, copy the Torah, the this upon book. Whether the king wrote out the law for himself or had a scribe do it is debated. To me, it seems to ignore the obvious to say that a scribe could write it out. Otherwise, one would think Moses would say he shall be provided a copy of this law. Rather, the words seem personal and directive in nature. The king shall write it out. However, in 2 Chronicles 23, a boy king, Joash, was installed at the age of only seven. He would have been too young to make such a copy. Because of this, it explicitly says, And they brought out the king's son, put the crown on him, gave him the testimony, and made him king. Then Jehoiada and his sons anointed him and said, Long live the king. Giving him the testimony means they gave him the law. As a side note, the words translated as copy the law, as found in the Greek translation of this verse, form the basis of the word Deuteronomy. The words are Deuteros and Nomos, or literally second law. Together in Greek, they read to Deuteronomium toto. In other words, one could say he shall write for himself the Deuteronomy. It is from this that both the Latin and the English derive the name that we now use for the book of Deuteronomy. The words are found again in Joshua 8, verse 32, when Joshua wrote a second copy on the stones of the altar Israel built at Mount Ebal. However, it seems apparent that the phrase as it is given here for the king certainly does not mean only the book of Deuteronomy, but rather the entire Torah, meaning the five books of Moses. The king was to be versed in the creation, 
in the history of sin, in the anticipation of the Messiah, the call of the patriarchs, the bondage of his people, their redemption from Egypt, the giving of the law, the turning of their hearts away from the Lord of his faithfulness to them in punishment, the anticipated establishment of them in the land, and even of the prophecy of the song of Moses that calls to attention both heaven and earth of the future apostasy of Israel. He was to know all of that. All of this was to be copied by the king. Just as the law copied by Joshua on the altar stood as a guide, a warning, and a witness to Israel, so the copy the king made was to have the same purpose. That book copied by the king was to be, verse 18 continues, from the one before the priests, the Levites. This is referred to in Deuteronomy chapter 31. So it was when Moses had completed the writings of the words of this law in a book, when they were finished, that Moses commanded the Levites who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, saying, Take this book of the law and put it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there as a witness against you. For I know your rebellion and your stiff neck. If today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord, then how much more after my death? The original was kept in the sanctuary. Any copy of it was to be directly from it, and it was probably carefully checked by someone qualified to verify it as an authentic rendering. As far as the king's copy, verse 19, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life. Now, before I go on, if you hear the noise going off here, or if you're listening to this sermon and you hear a noise behind me, there's all kinds of bells ringing. That is people sending missiles into Israel. And I'm allowing myself to have that during this sermon so that I remember the plight of those people. This is a command, verse 19. It is a command to not read it would be a violation of the law. Thus, the burden of being a king actually bears more weight of judgment than that of others, at least in this regard. The thought is reminiscent of the words of James 3, verse 1. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. One who is expected to lead or instruct from the law must know the law. This is what makes Solomon's violations of it so perplexing. It seems as if he read the first words that Moses penned out that we have looked at, and then he decided to see how merciful the Lord could actually be by going and violating every single one of them. The king of Israel was given a command to read the law every single day of his life. This was so that he was aware of the law. Though no such explicit requirement is made under the new covenant, the intent behind the precept is still there. A person cannot teach what he does not know, and one cannot know that which he is not familiar with. And familiarity with something such as biblical precepts will not be remembered if they are not read and meditated on constantly. And for the Christian in the pew, I'm talking to all of you today, there is likewise no excuse, no excuse for you to be misled through incorrect instruction. This is especially so in today's world. The word is available. It can be accessed at any time and almost during any activity that we pursue. If it is to be the ruling guide of your life, it can only be so if you know it. For the king of Israel, it was so, verse 19 going on, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes. Moses uses the same word he does so often, lema'an, or to and purpose. 
The daily reading was to be the king's vital connection between himself and his relationship with the Lord. If he failed to do as instructed, that could not exist. And if he failed to do so, he could not comply. And fellow follower of Christ, neither can you. Of this, Adam Clark rightly states the following of the king of Israel. This was essentially necessary as these laws of God were all permanent and no Israelitish king could make any new law. The kings of this people being ever considered as only vicegerents of Jehovah. But does that not apply to us as well? We have the authoritative word of God, don't we? We cannot add to it. We cannot take from it. Therefore, our conduct in relation to it, our training concerning it, and even the reception of someone's training from it must be in accord with what is presented in the Word. Hence, every single Thursday night when I have Bible study, I say, now it's your turn to go home and check what Charlie Garrett has said to you. That's the precept I'm telling you about right now. Nothing else can or will suffice. Again, Joseph Benson rightly states the following. It is not enough to have Bibles. Everybody here got a Bible in their house? Let me see how many hands have a Bible in their house. Every single hand went up. But we must use them. Yay, use them daily. Our souls must have constant meals of that manna, which, if well digested, will afford them true nourishment and strength. Does anybody disagree with that? The instruct If I heard a yes, I'd be opening that door and saying, get out. <laughs> The instruction for the king is instruction for you because the precept remains for both true. If Joseph Smith took to heart the words of scripture, his heart would not have been lifted up against the Lord to start Mormonism. And if the followers of Joseph Smith were acquainted with the word, they would not face the certain prospect of an eternal swim in the lake of fire. But this is exactly what they will face because they simply failed to abide by the precept. As for the king, in fearing the Lord and knowing his law and statutes, it was so, verse 20, that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren. The king was a king because the Lord chose him to be so. Saul obviously failed to observe the precept before us now. When he was first called as the king, he said to Samuel, Am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel and my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak like this to me? However, because he failed to heed the word of law, his kingship was removed from him. It says later in 1 Samuel 15, but Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. The purpose of this verse, it says that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren. And that's exactly what happened. And as Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the edge of his robe and tore it. So Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. The word was to protect the king from such error, and it is intended to do so for us today as well. In the case of the king, verse 20 continues that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left. The king cannot stay on the right path unless the requirements of how to do so are known. Without the law, he's like a blind man groping in the dark. With the law, however, Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. 
It is that simple. In the dark, we don't know if we're turning right, turning left, or going straight. And the fact is that we will not go straight for very long. The natural inclination, if you've ever tried it, the natural inclination in the dark is to veer, and it happens very, very quickly. But with the light of the word, we will continue on the path without turning aside. Now, you see a little asterisk next to this paragraph that's coming up. I was typing this sermon, and I was thinking about every one of you and every person that will listen to this video as I type this next paragraph. As I sat typing these words on 8 March of 2021, I was thinking in my head, how many people who hear them or read them will actually take what I am typing to heart? All I can do is convey in conveying the words will hopefully convict and in conviction may there be willful and wholehearted compliance the path is set and the word is the lamp to illuminate it what will you do and there is a good reason for what is conveyed verse 20 finishes with and that he may prolong his days in his kingdom he and his children in the midst of israel there is no and in the hebrew the addition is an unfortunate one because the previous clause also began with that. But the word here, lema'an, is not in the previous clause. Here it says to and purpose. In other words, there is a goal to be attained through the reading and meditation of the word. Not turning aside is the action, but in not turning aside, the king would prolong his days. For Saul, this did not occur. For other kings, it did not occur. When the king departed from the word, even the most disastrous of calamities came upon him. Here's what it says in 2 Chronicles 21. Because you have not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat, your father, or in the ways of Asa, king of Judah, but have walked in the way of the kings of Israel and have made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to play the harlot like the harlotry of the house of Ahav, and also have killed your brothers, those of your father's household who were better than yourself, behold, the Lord will strike your people with a serious affliction, your children, your wives, and all your possessions, and you will become very sick with the disease of your intestines until your intestines come out by reason of the sickness day by day. And then in 2 Chronicles 21, after all this, the Lord struck him in his intestines with an incurable disease. Then it happened in the course of time, after the end of two years that his intestines came out because of his sickness so that he died in severe pain and his people made no burning for him like the burning for his fathers. Now, before I go on, I always, when I go to the hospital, which I can't do anymore because of the crisis, but when I visit somebody, if they have a bad knee, I go to the Bible and I pull out a verse about a knee just so that they have a reference point of their affliction. And if they have a bad heart, I can pull out 10,000 verses about the heart. And when somebody has a problem with something else, I always pull it out. But I had a friend having a colon surgery. And I said, I can give you a verse, but I'm going to warn you in advance. Do you want to hear this? And he said, yes, I do. And I read him those verses. You go to the hospital, you're going to get a Bible verse from Charlie that's going to match your affliction. So don't be crazy, okay? Don't be crazy. As far as the words, he and his children in the midst of Israel... That was literally true on occasion as well. 2 Chronicles 25. So they took the king and brought him to the king of Babylon at Rivlah, and they pronounced judgment on him. Then they killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, 
put out the eyes of Zedekiah, meaning that the very last thing he ever saw with his eyes was the slaughter of his sons, bound him with bronze fetters, and took him to Babylon. These and countless other such terrible events could have been avoided if the kings of Israel had simply taken the word to heart. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. But such was not to be. And the reason for this is that these men, like each of us, is fallen and fallible. To have a copy of the word and to even hold it as close as meditation on the mind is still insufficient to keep us from death. Listen, King David surely followed this precept. It doesn't say it in the Bible, but... He surely did. He lived a long life. And guess what he did as well? He wrote scripture for us. The man was a man who followed after God's own heart, and yet he died. We're all going to die, and this precept will not keep somebody from death. This is proven in good kings as well as bad kings. And the reason for this is that our minds are pre-infected with sin, the sin of our first father. The law could only be a guard for the king, not a ticket to restoration in life. The king was to write out, read, and meditate upon, and to know this word to guard him until the time when the embodiment of this word, meaning Jesus Christ, would come and fulfill it. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. David, a king of Israel, knowing full well that he had turned from the path in his own life, prophesied of one who would come and not do so. Instead, he would not only walk on the straight path, he would be that straight path, the way, the truth, and the life. As the embodiment of the law, we find our restoration with God through him, because he lived out this impossible body of law for us. This is the lesson of the law, and it is the lesson of the king who sits on the throne of his kingdom. It is a kingdom that will be prolonged for eternal days, and it is one to be enjoyed by his children forever. The final words of the verse and the chapter are summed up in the words of Hebrews chapter 2. Here am I and the children whom God has given me. Thank God for Jesus Christ. And all of God's people say, Amen. Amen. This is what we're facing in this world today, folks, a decline in morality because we're not following the precepts of our founding fathers who were all, as I said during the update, all Christians. There were no deists among them, none. That's a lie that's been put into our society to further pull us away from the truth of Scripture. They were all believing Christians. You cannot pray to a God if you were a deist. That means you're not a deist if you do. This nation needs help. But every person in this nation and every person on this planet needs help as well. And the help is called Jesus Christ. As I said, we're pre-infected with sin. This law can have us live a good moral life, and a lot of people live by it even though they don't know who Christ is. There's nothing good in a person that is following the law if he isn't in Christ. Because there's nothing good without Christ. But in Christ, then we can be counted as righteous before our Heavenly Father. 
And so the gospel is given. Christ died for our sins. Christ was buried. Christ rose on the third day. This is what the Bible transmits to us, is that all of this law we're looking at, all of these failures, even by the wisest man who ever lived, are put under the blood of Jesus Christ if we will simply believe the gospel message. This is what I would ask of you today. Please, trust in Christ because your climb to heaven on your own merits is an eternal climb. Eternal, that means forever. And you've only got a very short life. You will not make it. Trust in Christ. Our closing verse comes from Psalm 147. He does not delight in the strength of the horse. He takes no pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his mercy. Now, next week it says I'm going to do Deuteronomy uh, 18, 1 through 8. That is not true. Next week I'm going to do a special sermon for all of you based on the request of a friend that took me out to breakfast over at the Dutch Valley restaurant a couple weeks ago. You asked for it, you got it, Toyota. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. But he also has the expectations of you as he prepares you for entrance into his land of promise. And so follow him, trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? That's what I would ask for you today. Uh, Your son probably doesn't know that. You're not old enough to know the commercial. It was probably when I was 10. That was... You asked for it, you got it, Toyota. Okay, there you go. He had no idea. I still remember that years and years ago. I mean, years ago. That's when they also had Datsuns. Do you know what a Datsun is? Datsun B210. Man, I went to to the East Coast with my friend Scott Kellaway many times in a Datsun B210. He probably did as well. You know, Scott's a surfer. I've talked about him in this church. He came to the Lord recently, and he is on fire. He reads the Word, and he's just... Man, oh man, wonderful, wonderful thing. Yeah, so I'll tell you about Scott. He, his father uh, worked at the Datsun dealer down here, and so he got cars really cheap, and he treated them that way. And one time he got out there, and he was going to pull somebody out of the mud because we had these guys who had these big trucks that would drive around in the mud, and one of them, Sam Cosentino, got his truck stuck in the mud right down the road from us at a house, a place where houses were being developed. And so Scott went to pull him out, and that bumper was, instead of being flat, it was bent like this. And so what did he do? He said, i got to get this thing fixed. I want Dad to get mad at me. So he went over to uh, the uh, fish place that used to be there. What was it called? The fish restaurant right down on 41. Um, we went there all the time. Davy Jones Locker and... and uh, yeah, the original. Anyway, he went over there, and there was a big uh, light pole in the middle of the parking lot with a concrete thing around the bottom, and he put it in reverse, and he backed into that thing, and you could not tell that that thing, you could not tell that was ever bent. It was incredible. And then one time he got, this is the kind of guy he was when he was young. One time he got mad at somebody that was in front of him that was obviously not supposed to be driving, and he walked up to him at the light, pulled the keys out of the car, and threw them as far as he could. Scott was a, he was a tough guy, but he's, He's a very good guy. You ever get he'll be he'll be down here. You've all met him before. You'll know him when he comes and you can you can hear about him. He's he's a wonderful guy and he knows the Lord. Wow. Okay. Uh, and you know one other thing, he has um diabetes. He's had it since he was a kid. I mean, 
And one day he uh, he had a, a whatever thing, and he called me, and he said, I need you to come over and be with me tonight because I may die. I need you to be with me through the night. And he was swollen up like a balloon, and he threw up all night long. And the next day he was fine. He was out doing his thing again. But mom never thought he'd make 20. She said, that kid's not going to make 20 years old. No kid. Well, anyway, Scott's a wonderful guy. You'll all get to see him soon. I got a poem for you. A king over Israel. Wait, before I give you the poem, horses are mentioned in the passage today. We know Jesus returns on a horse and that horses are mentioned elsewhere in the book of Revelation. But give me a time when they are mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament, apart from Revelation, horses in the New Testament. Anybody. If you do, you get one of those precious pins that nobody's taken for a while. Horses in the New Testament. There's two places where they are mentioned. One of them is implicitly. I'll give you that. If you don't get that, that's fine. But there is one where they're mentioned explicitly. James. James. Very good. You get another pin. Okay. Here we go. The first one is from Acts 23. And it says there in Acts 23, as I said, this is implicit. It says, Acts 23, 23, so he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends. Oh, am I, I'm in 24. You got to be in 23 to get the right verse. <laughs> 23, 23 says, and he called two centurions saying, prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night. And then it repeats it down in verse 32, these horses. Okay. The second one is from the book of James. And it says there in James uh, 3, hang on. Yes, that was very good. That was very insightful of you. Do not forget your pen. That's from Alana, wonderful young lady. Okay, um, indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths. That's right. We put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships, although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so... The tongue is a little member and boasts great things. It'll get you in a lot of trouble, the tongue will. Here we go, king over Israel. When you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, when it shall be, and possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you shall surely set a king over you, whom the Lord your God chooses, him and not another. One from among your brethren you shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. But he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, as I now say. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return again that way. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. It shall not be this way. Also it shall be, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write for himself a copy. Yes, be sure he writes of this law in a book from the one before the priests, the Levites. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God. And be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes in the land which he shall trod, that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, as to you I tell and that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. 
May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true, and we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the blessings of this life, and we thank you for this precious gift, your superior word. It is so wonderful, and we are negligent to read it as we should. We don't pick it up, and we do other things. But Lord, forgive us of that and give us a heart to want to get into it. And we have audio Bibles. We can just turn it on and listen. We can drive and listen. We can put that thing in our ear and listen and, and be filled with the richness of your word. Help it to be in our lives and may it be so to your glory. And Lord, we certainly pray for this young enlisted person here who's in the U.S. military serving, that he would continue to do a good job and to uh, bring honor to you through his service and we thank you for the others that have served here especially this gentleman over here who had spent most of his life serving this nation we thank you for that and we ask that you bless them in the week ahead lord how good you are to us to give us the riches of christ in our lives and so it's in his name we pray amen, amen.